Hi there. I just want to thank you so much for your positive response and feedback to this podcast. It's really an honor to be able to share these Kabbalah teachings with you. And um, I really appreciate those who have reached out to me. You can always reach out to me. I'm rabbi at jewishndg.com. I also wanted to let you know that what I did for you is I just started uh, this new website called theloverabbi.com. And if you go to shop, I put up all of the new Kabbalah courses that I'm giving. And you can literally just purchase those courses right there. There's a special introductory rate for you. I have... Um, Kabbalah mindfulness, turning door walls into doorways, the Kabbalah of dreams. I have concepts in Kabbalah, Kabbalah for everyone, the power of forgiveness, what are my values, and a bunch of courses there that you can just download. You can be able to watch them and um, get the resources there on your own time, at your own time. And of course, I'm always available to answer your questions. So it's really a win-win uh, for everyone. And I really encourage you to go there and to take a look at it. It's theloverabbi.com, T-H-E-L-O-V-E-R-A-B-B-I.com. And just go to shop and you'll see all the really great stuff there. You'll also see all the other great stuff on the website. And uh, in any case, thank you so much again and looking forward to seeing you soon. And now on with today's class. So tonight we're talking about the Kabbalah of balance. When you hear the word balance, what's the first word or the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, balance between good and bad, control. Control, balance between good and bad. Okay, what else? The fulcrum, the strength. Interesting. And why do you think that that is a symbol of balance? Because that's the point which is the center, where there is neither of one or the other. That's interesting. Okay, what else comes to mind when you think of balance? Weight. Weight, right? A scale can be balance. So you can actually use balance with your with your body. You can use your, you know, balance with yourself and with your body. So, if someone says to you, "I'm trying to achieve balance in my life," what does that tell you? What is they're unbalanced? They're unbalanced. Someone who's unbalanced is going to try to achieve balance in their life, which means what is the opposite of balance? No control. No control, or, or possibly or unbalanced, or, right? Or pendulum swing. Pendulum swing. This is fascinating because, so what I'm gonna do right now is I'm going to talk about probably the most important thing I'm gonna speak about tonight when it comes to balance and how to live a balanced life. Everything else that we're gonna talk about tonight is not gonna be as important as this moment. The most important thing you're gonna to learn tonight is if you want to achieve 
balance in life, you cannot try to achieve balance in, in your life. If you try to achieve balance in your life, there's no way to find the balance. If you want to achieve balance in your life, you cannot strive for balance. What does Kabbalah say? You have to go to the opposite extreme. You see, let's say your life is between two lines and balance is the middle of those two lines. So now, how do you find your way to the other side, or how do you find your way to the middle? If I'm here, how am I going to find the middle? If I strive for the middle, I'm not finding the middle. If I strive for the middle, I'm just going to maybe be a little better than I was before. If I want to find the middle, I have to go to the other side. The opposite of what I'm doing now, if I strive for that, then I'll find the middle. And that's the answer. That's it. And just by striving for the opposite extreme, I will end up in the middle. But isn't there a tendency to overshoot? So and you're, then you have to strive the other way and you're constantly. So it's a good worry. You're worried about the tendency people have to overshoot. And then what ends up happening is you have to strive the opposite direction in order to find your way to the balance. So exactly like we said before, it's like a pendulum swing. We're constantly trying to find the balance. So we're never going to truly be balanced. A balanced person is one whose pendulum is not going like this, but rather the pendulum is going like this. For example, let's talk, we've been talking about mind and heart for the past few weeks. Let's talk about mind and heart. What is the balance of mind and heart? We have intellect and we have emotions. What is the balance between intellect and emotions? So I mentioned this before. 51% intellect, 49% emotions. Now, how do you find, if you're an intellectual person, and you're someone who doesn't like your emotions, or you're not in touch with your emotions, or your emotions you don't find are as important to you as your knowledge, if you're going to live a balanced life between intellect and emotions, because that's part of the human spirit, then you need to be able to get in touch with your emotions. How are you going to get in touch with your emotions? Are you going to still be intellectual and find your emotional expression through your intellect? Or are you going to push yourself over to the, let's say, emotional side, and then eventually you'll find a little more emotion in your life? Or the opposite, if you're someone who's very emotional, if you're uh, someone who's, let's say, neurotic, how do you find intellect in your life? How do you start making decisions, not from your gut, not from your emotions, not reactive? How do you start making proactive decisions? An intellectual person, by nature, again, I'm generalizing because I have no other choice but to generalize for the sake of this conversation, but an intellectual person is by nature going to make proactive decisions. An emotional person will by nature make reactive decisions. Let's say you decide, you, you leave this class and then you say, you know what, I'm a very reactive person. But I want to change that. I want to become proactive for a few minutes. I want to start, as the Mishnah says, Chacham ra'e et hanoled. I want to start being a wise person 
who can see the future. I'm going to think one, two, five steps ahead. I'm going to start being proactive about my life. But if I've spent the past 20 years being reactive and emotional and instinctive, how am I going to start being proactive? See, it's very simple. I have to stop listening to my heart and my gut and start thinking. When I stop what I was doing before and I start to think, that automatically will make me proactive. It's not this complicated scientific method. It's simply changing course. Now, what I just did was I went from one extreme to the opposite extreme. I used to be instinctive. I used to be reactive. And now I'm stopping and I'm going to think. And now I'm going to become proactive. Now, if I were to say, you know what? I like my emotions. I like being, I like that, that intensity. And I like the, the instinctive. And I like that. I'm the kind of person who's just like goes with the wind. What ends up happening then? I want to make a decision that's proactive, but I like the emotions. How am I going to make a decision that's proactive and like the emotions at the same time? I must learn to use my intellect for that minute. And all it takes is one minute. It's not a, a complicated matter. That's balance. We're going to find balance in our lives by going to the opposite extreme. And that's the most important thing that I can tell you tonight. If your nature is one way, go to the opposite of your nature. And by default, your center of being will find its balance. Because the opposite of your nature is not instinctive. It's not natural. If it's not natural for you, your, nat your nature is going to want to find its center of balance. Now, what happens if we constantly introduce things that are not natural to us? If we're constantly introducing things that aren't natural to us, eventually, our nature changes. Eventually, we take what used to be unnatural, and it becomes natural. Good evening. It's an amazing idea. What we're basically saying is the way to live a balanced life is to break your nature. But I don't want to break my nature. I like what's comfortable in my life. What are you talking about? My job in this world is to make my life easy. I want it to be as easy as possible. I want it to be as simple as possible. I want to try to figure out ways of allowing everything to be easy and simple in my life. Because that's our world, our world of industry. Everything's got to work. We're going to create systems, and it's going to all work on its own. And what's my job? My job is to become, in the financial world, they say passive income. So in my own life, I want to be passive. My job is not to be active in my life. I want to become passive in my life. Like passive income, like a passive life. That's very, very nice. It's a good idea for people who are into the passive income thing, but not a good idea for people who are into growing. Because Kabbalah says... There's only two ways to go in the world, up or down. You're either growing or you're regressing. You're never going to stay status quo. Balance is not staying status quo. There's no such thing as status quo. If you're not growing, you're going the other way. Or the Rebbe used to say, every living thing must grow. Because it's life. 
That's what life is. Life is about growing. So the moment you start saying, I'm going to become passive in my life, you're, be, you're going to start regressing. The moment you say, I'm happy, you become complacent and passive, and you start regressing. Comfort zone. It's easy. That's what I want. I don't want complicated. I don't want it. I don't want it difficult. I just want something simple. What are you bothering me for with all your complicated ideas? I want to live a simple life. Whoever told you that you came in this world to live a simple life, they were wrong. You came in this world to uplift this world because you have a unique imprint that only you have. There's no soul that came into this world before you. There's no soul that's going to come into this world after you. And there's no soul who's living during your lifetime that has the same purpose as you. You came into this world for a unique purpose. If you knew that purpose, well, you would have figured it out and you'd be gone. Part of the mystery of life is to discover that. How do we discover that? We discover that by finding things that are difficult for us. The things that are going to be difficult for us are going to be the things that are going to help us grow. We know that when boxers and wrestlers, UFC, right? They know that. You have, what do they call it? They call it, uh, um, there's, a, there's a term for it in wrestling. Right. Where they have to, they have to, they have to fight it. In order to, and if, if you don't, if you don't fight, you don't grow, you don't become stronger. I forgot the term, there's a term for it. In anything in life, you see, we spend so much time focusing on our bodies. We're so good at building up our bodies. We go to the gym, we eat well, but what about the other half of our being? Or I'm going to say more than the other half of our being, most of our being, our soul. What is that? What are we doing for that? How are we building up our souls? Our souls lying dormant, wondering, what about me? How am I going to become stronger? And part of that resistance training, that's what I was thinking of. Part of that resistance training is doing things that are purposefully not good for us. Sorry, scratch that. They're purposefully not easy for us, but very good for us. Most of what's really good for us is not, it's not easy at all. Well, you would hope, so we'd hope that we say that, but not everybody says that. Right. A lot of people are looking for things that are easy, and they think if it's easy, if I, because that the industry, being in an industrial age, and an age of technology, has allowed us all to think industrial. So what's our job? Let's just create a system. It'll be okay. What am I going to do? I'm going to do my routine. People are into routines. It's very good. And I'm not saying routines are bad. But at the same time, we have to figure out a way to create spiritual resistance training, right. emotional resistance training. Because in today's industrial society, the purpose is to consume. And so even when we use the word, how do we, what do we want to do with life? We want to enjoy life, right? Enjoy life. So we create this... Uh, this bond, this unbreakable bond between what is good and what is fun. Exactly. What is good must be fun. And I, I realized even with, uh, with, with, you know, whether it's physical training or eating, whatever, I just always had this idea in my head that things had to be fun. 
and so when I stopped looking at it as fun, I, I, I put things now in the, the box of like brushing my teeth. It's like there's nothing fun about it, but it must be done. And it's, it's a lot more efficient. You and it's interesting that you say that, that, that we put this kind of barrier in front of us, that it's got to be fun. It's got to be enjoyable. It's got to be exciting. If I'm not having fun, if I'm not, actually, it's I'm going to go a step further than you. If I'm not being entertained while I'm doing it, it's not fun. It's not good. So literally, we, we started calculating our lives based on our entertainment quality. How much entertainment quality does this have for me? Which is why, so often, I find people like to hear their friends' problems. It's like their own little drama show. Oh, my life wasn't so interesting. Now I'm going to hear about your life. Oh, that sounds like it's so much more interesting than my life. And I'm going to be able to feel so much better about myself and all my problems because, oh my gosh, my problems aren't half as bad as yours, but I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just going to listen and I'm going to smile like, oh, I'm going to go home and I'm exhausted. But it was so much fun. <laughs> How do we be all become psychologists? Okay, entertainment value. You get in on somebody else's secrets. Do you know, do you know the German word, like, Schadenfreude? I think it's that, that having a word for that. Exactly. It's unbelievable concept. It's the pleasure of somebody else's troubles. The pleasure of someone else's troubles. Yeah. Do you it's, think it's always a pleasure? I think Maybe that... you're just a good listener and you want to help out. It could be that you're a good listener and it could be you want to help out. It could be you also get a little bit of enjoyment from it. What good listeners and people who help there's different types. I, I, I mean, it's a good question. I don't want to go into all the details of, but you get the idea of when is it something that I'm doing for fun, just because I enjoy it, and because I want to have entertainment value in my life, or when is it something that's part of my purpose? Things that are going to be more difficult for me are things that are going to be more part of my purpose. But it is a very good question. What's wrong with being a little bit, having a little bit of enjoyment? People that have I'm not saying don't have any, I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't have passion and don't have enjoyment. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you have to think about what is it that I'm doing and why am I doing it. Instead of being reactive, be proactive. Instead of being instinctive, think about what is this all about? What is my life all about? Why am I doing this? Why did Hashem put me in this particular situation at this particular time? If you don't like the word Hashem, call it destiny. It's all the same thing anyway. Is there going to be an answer? Of course. Let's get there. Not all at once. Yes. You, you backtracked it. You talked about trying to make everything a routine. Yes. In employment, the worst thing to do is make anything a routine. Because once you make a routine, it's automated and it's replaceable. While it's much better to always keep creating new things because then it's not gives you dismounted employment history. Once you create a routine, then nobody nobody wants to think that they're replaceable. Though a lot of us instinctively and unconsciously or subconsciously try to create a situation where we become replaceable. And when we do, we're shocked. One of the, the, the industries that was most shocking was computer programming. In the 80s, there was a tremendous amount of human power that was needed to program computers. Over time, they figured out ways that computers can program themselves. And there were two types of computer programmers in the 80s. Those that 
were very stuck in their ways. And what ended up happening is when they had all these new systems, those people became obsolete with the computers they used. The same reason why the Commodore 84 became obsolete, these programmers that were using the Commodore 84 became obsolete as well. And there was another kind of programmer who realized that technology is changing so quickly, and so even though after they learned it in school, they went and continued learning more and more and more, and eventually they grew with the computer and with technology, and they became much more valuable because they had all of the knowledge of the, the 80s, and they went into the 90s, and many of them have gone and still are computer programming today, to this day, but in the, in the 30 years or 35 years of programming, it's changed drastically. I think that's probably the industry that's, the reason why I'm using it as an example is the industry that's changed more than any other industry in the past 35 years. And if you don't constantly grow with it, there's no way to be able to continue to be in that industry. And that's the same thing with our souls and our lives. If we don't grow with it and constantly grow, we're not gonna be able to uh, build our lives. Let's, let's continue. Has anyone ever tried to find a balanced life? And maybe you, you've heard someone use this word when it came to a balanced life. They use the word happy. Instead of I'm trying to find balance, I'm trying to find happiness. What is the difference between trying to find balance in your life and trying to find happiness in your life? Last week we spoke about happiness. Yeah, because you see the last time, uh, the happy is a shortened of standing and being So we said last week that happiness is short-term. Okay. Balance is going to be long-term. You see, we made a differentiation, even though the English language is a bad language to use terms like this, but we made a differentiation in English between the word happy and the word joyful. That happiness is subjective, it's short-term, and joyous or joyfulness is objective and it's long-term. What we're gonna say is the same thing tonight, that trying to find balance in our lives is a long-term solution, which means that the little balance that we find in our lives, for example, when we go to the opposite extreme or we do something that's difficult for us today, even though there's a short-term value in it, it's gonna hurt today, it's gonna bother us today, it's not gonna be happy today, it's not going to be fun today. It's going to be very difficult today. But tomorrow, same thing like resistance training, tomorrow we're going to get emotionally and spiritually buffed. I think also happiness is, uh, strikes me as being very static. It's a one particular state that we're creating an ideal. And so when you create that perfect state, uh, right. it becomes very easy for it to not be perfect. Exactly. And, and, very quickly. and if you create the perfect state, then you're not growing. Okay. And every living thing must grow. And if we don't grow, we regress. Where so balance implies balance between at least two things. So it's dynamic, and it being dynamic is something that seeks uh, harmony between multiple elements. Right. And so, if if you can achieve that, it's a lot harder to achieve than a temporary uh, ideal state. But if you can achieve balance, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to do this. So that's what we're going to talk. That's what we're going to get into tonight. Somebody once came to the Rebbe, young woman. The Rebbe used to give out dollars on Sunday. And every single person who passed, the Rebbe handed them a dollar. The Rebbe's philosophy was that when two people meet, they should do something that benefits a third. 
in the course of a Sunday, the Rebbe would give out somewhere between ten to twenty thousand dollars, a single one dollar bills to people who would come by him. This woman, young woman, comes to the Rebbe, distraught. It's on the video. There's videos of scholars that use the video. You can watch it. She's distraught. She's sad. She says, Rebbe, I'm not a good person. Now she's expecting this great sage, this great rabbi, to tell her the most amazing thing that is going to change her life and set her on a course of goodness for the rest of her life. Because he's a great scholar and a great rabbi. And you can see it in her eyes. She's waiting for the Rebbe's answer. She says, Rebbe, I'm not a good person. The Rebbe gives her a, a stern look and then smiles and says, you're not good, so be good. <laughs> By your own definition. She was waiting for this euphoric, exciting answer that's going to be life-changing. You're not good, so be good. What was the Rebbe saying to her? That the answer to your problem, the remedy to your issue, is doing the exact opposite of what you're doing. If you don't like what you're doing now, if you're not good now, then do the opposite and be good. If you're sad, be happy. If you're curled up in bed, get out of bed. It's not complicated. It's actually very simple. If you're ever in a down place, if you're ever feeling bad, then just do the opposite because all it is is a feeling. It's not, it's not a, an intellectual pursuit. It's not something that you have to convince yourself now I'm feeling good, and now I'm going to feel good, and I'm going to do goodness, and I'm going to find my inner Freudian child, and that inner Freudian child is going to teach me how to be good again, and I'm going to go to therapy. I mean, I'm not saying therapy is bad. It's a wonderful thing for those who need it. It's like a turn-off button. But it's not an intellectual pursuit. It's an emotion. Mm -hmm. The way you change an emotion is you change the emotion. Obviously, there are some people who are extreme situations that need medication, so on. I'm not talking about, I'm a big advocate for medication. I think it's important for those who need it. But if life is too stressful, if life is too much, then make it too little. Make it less stressful. Now I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to go a step deeper. What is the opposite of love? Hate. Any objections to that? Let me clarify. We're talking about the line. If love is on one side of the line, what is the balancer? Right? We're talking about balancer. 
What is the one that's going to balance? Is the opposite of love hate? Does that, the, does that, does that balance out love? Any other thoughts? Yes? Interesting. So the opposite of love, indifference. Good answer. Like. Like. Interesting. The opposite of love is like. Okay. Fear. The opposite of love, fear. What do you think of that? Greed. The opposite of love is greed. Similar to the way the opposite of selfishness is selflessness. So that would work. If love is, if you, if you, if you perform selfish love, then the opposite of that would be selfless love, or the the balance of that would become greed. Kabbalah puts love on the opposite side of the pendulum. If I can use that term, it's not a kabbalistic term, but it's a term that we all know in this room. On the opposite side of the pendulum to fear. The balancer of love is fear. Why? Because anything that's going to happen in our lives, how are we going to react to it emotionally? Well, there's two emotional reactions that we can have to anything in our lives. A love emotion and a fear emotion. Kabbalah puts it in deeper terms about service of God. How we experience our spiritual our, our, our spirituality or our Hashem in our lives? Do we approach Hashem through love or through fear? And actually, just these opposites really define a lot of how we look at the world. Our, our spiritual outlook is going to be defined. So a lot of people, and I, you can probably, the first thing when I say that you're thinking of your parents, I know, who their reaction to tradition or to spirituality is fear-based. A lot of us were raised in a fear-based tradition. Why do you do it? Because. What are we doing now? We're doing it now. Because I've said, and I'm your father, and I'm not your leader. And that is a lot of how we were raised. What did that turn us into? Or what did that turn our society into? What we called, here, at least here in Quebec, the silent revolution happened as a result of that kind of fear. You put too much, if you have too much fear, the response is the opposite of fear. We're just going to destroy everything in our path, anything having to do with religion, anything having to do with spirituality. That makes sense. That was a natural response to too much fear in Quebec. So now... What if we changed that response? And it wasn't a fear-based response, but now it became a love-based response. Or let's go even a step further. What if it was unconditional love? What if the way we approached our spirituality, the way we responded to things, was in a way of unconditional love? Remember, so many of us try to control things that are out of our control. We try to control things that are not possible to control. What is, what's the first thing people complain about? Weather. The weather. What are you going to do about it? 
Complain. Okay, fine. If it makes you happy, complain. But what are you going to do about it, really? Imagine... Imagine if... And I'm using a stupid example of the weather, but let's just go with it for the sake of going with it. Imagine if you approached the weather from unconditional love. What would your response be to it? Be accepting. More than accepting it. Yeah, big snow coming. Great day. Montreal put that theory to the test. <laughs> I'm not saying that Montreal doesn't put that theory to the test, but now imagine that's easy. The weather. It's amazing. What if we had that child look like? Because naturally, somewhere within our child, Naturally, we used to respond by with love and excitement and enthusiasm. Along the line, things happened, life happened, experience happened, and we stopped responding to things with love and enthusiasm and more fear. But ideally, because we're naturally skeptics, we want to start looking and finding ways be unconditional loving because by being unconditionally loving that skepticism slowly fades away we're still going to have it because we all have it within us it's the way we're raised and it's our nature but if we look and try to find the love in our lives and how to respond to various elements of our lives with love it changes everything so what do we do Take a step back. Take a step back, focus and think. Don't respond. It's natural to respond negatively. It's natural to respond with fear. It's not as natural for us in our society to respond with love. Many people in our society, in our world, create our lives and our reactions based out of fear. Many of us create our narratives based out of fear. I'm afraid of, so I'm gonna do this. This scares me. Scary. I'm afraid, I'm fear, I'm worried. I hear that a lot, I'm worried. What happened, we became so neurotic, we're worried about everything and everyone all the time. We're always worried. I have a feeling it's not going to be good. You're yeah. already putting it out there. You're already putting it out there. And so when it doesn't turn out to be good, you become a prophet. <laughs> prophecy was removed from this world. There's no prophecy anymore. Actually, according to one opinion, prophecy was given to fools and children. Think about that a moment. You don't want to be a prophet. How many people believe that they can tell the future? Because like that story of uh, if, uh, Warren Buffett talks about this guy at the stock market. Every single day he says the stock market is going to crash and crash and crash. And eventually... And then 2008, it crashed. He goes, you see, I was right. The only philosophy that doesn't... days. The only philosophy doesn't work out, for, apparently, from what I understand, if you play the same lottery numbers every day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily you're going to find the right... The, the right Package. You played long enough. Yeah. You'd be right. I used to be responsible for forecasting. I went to a forecasting conference. 
first slide is, when man tries to predict the future, God, or just God, laughs. That's it. And that was the start. So. When man tries to predict the future, God laughs. And now we know that God has a sense of humor very often. More often than not. People don't remember when they're wrong. Unbelievable. They don't remember when they're wrong. Yeah. I work in an industry where everybody makes like projections of the future, and I, I stopped doing it like four years ago because I noticed that everybody is so wrong all the time, and including me. I was also wrong. I also predicted there's a lot of change. And I'm like, no. And then you see what actually happened, and it's like, I remember, four, like, nobody predicted that. No one. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think is the one industry that makes predictions that should get a new job. Manufacturers suggested retail price. <laughs> Nobody ever listens to the suggestions. Whoever's making those suggested retail prices, predicting these prices, has to get a new job anyway. <laughs> so when we talk about balance, Kabbalah says the first step to balance is to find the two opposites. To find the two ends of the stick, that's how you're going to create balance in your life. When you first walked into this room tonight, you thought the opposite of love maybe was hate. You didn't think that the opposite of love was based on your reaction to things, which, or your reaction to emotional and spiritual things in your life, which is fear or love. Now that you know that, can you think to yourself, do I fear more or do I love more? I fear more. It's a big realization. I think if there's one realization that came from tonight, that's a very powerful one. If you fear more, then what is the answer to fearing more? Start loving more. If you're living your life being worried all the time, then you have to go to the opposite extreme for a little bit of time. We're not saying forever, but your nature is to worry. So go to the opposite extreme and start approaching everything in your life and responding to those things in your life from love and see what happens. See if something changes. See if your response creates someone else's response. And as a result of that response, the people in your life will respond differently. You have the ability to create a different mechanism around you just by responding differently to things that happen around you. For an example, for the environment? So give me an example of how we respond to things about fear. We're worried about? Worried about money. Worried about what? Worried about what about money? We're going to use money as an example. That's what came up first. What about money? Not having enough. Not having enough money. I'm worried I don't have enough money. That's my response. I don't have enough money. I look inside my bank account and I see there's not enough money to pay my rent. Let's just say that's what I'm worried about. What do I do? What's, the, uh, what's another way of reacting to that? What's another way? Instead of being worried about money, what do we do? Be happy about what? What's the love? How do we love? I look at my bank account, I can't pay my bills. What is there to love? So, you love the fact that your bills go on sale. 
you love it. You love when you get phone calls, you can't answer the phone anymore because you have too many creditors that are calling you and all they want is they're begging. You know these people, they're, they're robocalls. You don't know about these things. There's a, there was a great uh, Hasidic master. His name was Rabbi Zusha of Anapol. He had a brother. His brother's name was Abnachem of Chernobyl. A wealthy businessman. Starts coming to, comes to his brother and he starts telling him of his woes and how difficult business is and how he's not able to pay his employees and he's going under and life is terrible and it's horrible and it's, I can't handle it. But nothing looks at him and says, go to my brother. I don't have an answer for you. So the wealthy man travels to Anapol. Now Reb Zusha was a very poor man. He lived in a shack. He comes to Anapol and he starts asking around, where's the great Rabbi Zusha? So they point him in the direction where Rabbi Zusha is. He goes there and he knocks on the door. He sees the shack of a house. He can't believe the rabbi is living in this unbelievable, complete poverty. Rabbi Zusha answers the door. He says, your brother, Rabbi Nachum, he sent me to you because I have a lot of problems and a lot of worries. Rabbi Zusha looks at him and he says, he said she's the wrong person. I don't know anything about worries and problems. And starts dancing with him. He lived in a shack, in a hole. He had nothing, complete poverty. What is he dancing about? Reb Nachum and Reb Zusha are put in the prison. Many rabbis, the former Soviet Union, during communism, are put into prison for t practicing in religion and teaching Torah. They're put into prison. They're sharing a cell together. Reb Nachum starts to cry. What is he crying about? In the middle of the cell is a pot where they have to relieve themselves. You're not allowed to pray or study in a place that it smells disgusting. And he's crying. Reb Zisha says to him, I don't understand. What are you crying about? Hashem put us here. It's Hashem's problem. What are you crying about? Let's dance. So they start dancing around the pot. They're dancing and dancing. One of the guards comes by and says, what are these two people dancing about? They say, I don't know. The one was crying. The other one was, I don't know. They were, they were battling back and forth in Yiddish. So finally, they're pointing at the pot the whole entire time. And they start dancing around the pot. He says, give me that pot. <laughs> In life, what Rabbi Zusha teaches us and so many great people over the years have taught us is you're always in control of how you respond to everything in your life. You can cry because you can't pray or study around a disgusting smell. Or you can say, I'm sorry. Hashem is the one who made my bank account empty. I've made the vessel. I've done everything in my power. Now, Hashem, it's your problem. I'm going to dance. Dance around the pot. If you go to the opposite extreme, eventually 
life. Your life has to balance itself out. By you changing your response, you're going to be able to change the response of those around you. By you changing your response, you're going to be able to change the realities around you. That's balance. Is your response. You have the ability to control your response. Now we're going to go into the next level. We're going to go a step further, a step deeper. We haven't spoken about this yet in this course. Kabbalah talks about garments. Just like you have garments on your body, and the way you what you wear reflects on what you want the world to see you as, the Tanya says that you also have garments of your soul. Your soul has garments. Those garments are thought, speech, and action. Your thought, your words, and your deeds are the garments of your soul. Now, it's a very profound statement because I never looked at my actions and my words and my thoughts as separate from me. If they're garments of my soul, my shirt is not me. It's not my essence. Based on what I want to wear or let the world perceive to who I am, I'm going to wear various clothing. When I'm in the gym, I wear gym clothes. When I'm going to work, I wear work clothes. When I'm going to be leisure, a leisurely Sunday, I'm going to wear Sunday clothes. On Shabbat, I'm going to wear Shabbat clothes. You're telling me that thought, speech, and action are not part of me? They're not part of my essence? They're not part of who I am? They're garments of my soul? They're the clothing of my soul? But I can't separate myself from my emotions. Yes, I can. Are you sure? Yes, I can. Yes, you can. There's no brain in the heart. Science, some scientists will debate me on this. Most scientists won't debate me on this. There's no brain in the heart. So what we have to understand that when we do something or we say something or we think something, where is it coming from? Is it coming from a place of fear or is it coming from a place of love? So here's a story. Speech and action. You understand speech and action? As garments? Yes. Thoughts are internal while speech and actions are external. It's a great question. The Tanya asked the same question. But it's a reaction also. No, but what what he's saying is a very good question. I, I could say one thing and I can do something else. I can do something and say something else. But what about my thoughts? I can never stop thinking. Right? Even our dreams, when we're sleeping, we're still thinking subconsciously. And your thoughts are sometimes contradictory. I think, so, I think this statement is unique to Kabbalah, and it's revolutionary from a perspective that we actually have the ability to control our thoughts. 
we control our thoughts by changing our thoughts. So while a lot of schools of thought look at thoughts as something that's beyond our control, the Bible says thoughts create. They're fully within our control. The bad thought, replace it. Well, I think, I think it's also proven the other two elements can have an impact on thought as well. So change the way you speak. You will literally change the way you think. And if you act in different ways, okay, you stimulate different different thought patterns. I mean, we're talking about the but nutrition also, thing. You can also think one thing and say another. That's true. That's true. You can think one thing and say another. There's a perfect example of it but being a garment. Your behavior still exercises. You can exercise control over your thoughts right. in a very uh, in a very direct way. Yeah. So let's. I don't disagree with that. But my my understanding is that how could thoughts be a garment when it's so variable as opposed to speech, which is visible, and actions is visible, while thoughts, you know, just that's something to think about. Well, I, th I believe that it's a very good question, and this is revolutionary from a Kabbalistic perspective because I don't know of any other school of thought that I've seen, maybe somebody here can prove me wrong, but that I've seen that has this kind of thing, that, that actually thought is a garment of the soul. And Kabbalah spends a lot of time focusing on thought because it's the hardest to control and it's the most important because we believe that thoughts create. So while a lot of people say, well, thoughts are mine, nobody knows what I'm thinking right now. We don't believe that. Your, your thoughts are on your forehead. You may not think anyone knows what you're thinking. But your thought is your garment. So based on your thoughts, you have the ability. In a way, though, religions that put an emphasis on, and I know Judaism is one of them, but um, religions that put an emphasis on cor having correct beliefs, okay, recognize it. Yes. In a way. Yes. Because it's a good point. They give you responsibility for what you believe. It's true that it's true that they do give you responsibility for what they for in a believe. kind of a twisted way, like when I. I but I, not so direct. Like this. this is very direct. Yeah. This is very straightforward, very straight to the point, and almost simplistic in its way. Somebody says here, your actions reveal a lot of your real thoughts, and I think there's a, a huge correlation between your actions and your speech and your thought. And I start from your thought. Not starting from your actions, not starting from your speech, but it's actually starting from your thought. Thoughts have the ability to create influence and drive your, your, your speech and your actions. So here's a story. There was a rabbi who lived through communist Russia, was put into prison for one reason only, for spreading religion and Torah during a time that he wasn't allowed. Incredible man, passed away in 1994. His name was Reb Mendel Futafas. You can look him up, there's great stories about him. Now, he lived 25 years in Siberia, forced labor in the gulags. Crazy, I mean, Siberia makes Canada weather look nice, and they didn't have nice warm jackets and places to stay. They were forced labor camps. Now, there were a lot of different ways that, somebody just says here, your thoughts also are reflected in your expression, posture, breathing patterns. A lot more evident than we think. That's great. Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Some people that are watching and they're commenting. Thank you for your comments. So in order to survive the gulag in communist Russia and Siberia, everyone had to have some secret. And in general, they talk about survivors in general. There's always, each one of them has their own little secret. So Rabbi Mendel's secret was he would always listen to the stories of his cellmates and he would try to figure out what their stories meant for being a better person and for living in a, 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 a good life. How, you know, serving God, bringing goodness to the world. So one day he is partnered up in his cell with a circus performer, a tightrope walker. Now, he was a rabbi from a little shtetl, a little ghetto, never saw a circus in his life. And so they're sitting there, and the circus performer is telling him about what he used to do. He was a tightrope walker. And the rabbi is like, I, I don't understand. I can't, I, I can't even fathom. What do you mean? You're walking on a rope across, across in the middle of the air? He says, yeah, you take a tree and you take one rope and you tie it onto the one side and you pull it off the other side and you get up there. Says, How high are you from here? Oh, I can be very high up. Doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing that? What's the secret? Finally, it was May Day, Stalin Day. And they decided in the camp they're going to make a circus. And this tightrope walker was so excited because his old rabbi friend, was going to get to see him perform, and it wasn't even a myth anymore. It was for real. <coughs> he says, Rabbi, you're going to come see me? I'm going to come see you. So, so excited. Then, surely enough, he ties one rope to one tree, and he goes across the whole yard of the camp, and he ties the rope to the other tree, and it's his time to perform, and he's going back and forth and doing all his acts on the tightrope. He comes down from the tightrope, Rabbi, what do you think? Wow. It's brilliant. Brilliant. So tell me, Rabbi, how did I do it? So he said, I was watching you. And I could see that you always had your eyes on the goalpost. You never looked up and you never looked down. You always kept your eyes on the goalpost. So, Rabbi, you're right. That's the secret of tightrope walking. But I have another question for you. When I'm turning, I don't have my eyes on the goalpost. How do I keep my balance then? And the rabbi looks at him and he says, when you turn, your eyes focused until it locks with the next goal. And then you can continue. Because you know that as you're turning, you're going to reach the next goal post really soon. And he said, and that's the story of life. We're all tightrope walkers. We have to always keep our eyes on the goal post. We have to always see the goal in front of us. 
And sometimes it happens that we go off course. Sometimes we turn. Sometimes it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. Or something happens that throws us off course. We have to remember that all we're doing is making a simple turn. And the next goalpost is right in our eye view. And not to lose sight of our goalpost. That is what it means to live a balanced life. Balance is not something that's going to come easy. Balance is not something that is going to be simple. Balance is not something that's just going to happen by itself. Because if we're not growing, we're regressing. Every living thing must grow. And part of growth in our life is having a goalpost. And also, having a goalpost when something happens in our life that bothers us or it doesn't go the way that we want to, we have a goalpost. So we went off, we went off track for a little bit. That's okay. But at the end of the day, we have the post. We know where we're supposed to be headed. So you're going to say to me, but what if it's wrong? So what? So what if it's wrong? It exists, and that is the most important thing. We're going to go to page 18 in our books. <coughs> in a rush. In confusion. No one can serve their purpose on this earth. Human purpose is an exquisite balance between heaven and earth, requiring feet firmly upon the ground and a clear head up in the air. In a rush, the world is in control of you. Our job is to slow down and take control of our world. If the world has become controlling of you, then you're making a mistake. Slow down and take control of your world. You always have the ability to be in control at every moment. If somebody says to me, I'm out of control. No, you're not. It's the choice that you've made today to be out of control. It's okay. You're a human being. No one said it has to be perfect. Somebody wrote here, faith taking the first step when you can't see the whole staircase. Hasidic master, Rabbi Chaim of Krosno, observed an acrobatic balancing act on a tightrope high above the ground. And he told his disciples the following. He said, if that man would think about the money he would earn with this act, instead of concentrating on his rope, he'd surely make a mistake and crash to his death. Concluded Rabbi Chaim, shouldn't we concentrate in our service to God in the same way? Where's our focus? Where's our place? So we started talking tonight about the mind and the heart. What's in control? When we react, who's in control? Which part of us is in control? Is it our mind or is it our heart? You see, the mind and the heart, they make a good pair. The heart is an extremist. It's untamed. A single emotion will fill its entire space. 
the mind finds balance and harmony, even between opposites. The mind is cold and aloof. To the mind, reality is a curiosity. To the mind, reality is a curiosity. But the heart lives in a real world where things matter. When the heart listens to the vision of the mind, it too learns to carry a counterpoint of voices. Even the voices of other hearts. When the mind listens to the depths of the heart, then its vision can go out into the world. Somebody once said, I don't believe in God, but boy, boy am I scared of him. Living a life in fear, fear being the opposite of love, we end up making a lot of mistakes. We end up doing things we don't even realize we'll regret somewhere along the line because we made that choice and we didn't have a choice. At every moment, we have the choice. <coughs> we have the ability to be in control, actually. I'm going to tell you something that may be very powerful and something you never thought about before. Choice is all we have. The only thing that truly belongs to us is our choice. Nothing else is truly ours. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is possibly circumstantial. But the choice that we have, and especially the choice that we have of how we can react to a particular situation is truly all that belongs to us. That's why we're so concerned to study and understand, to be here now, so that we can make informed decisions. It's fascinating because according to Kabbalah, God did not create this world based on a need. God created this world based on a desire. And according to Kabbalah, the opposite of desire is need. Think about it for a second. The opposite of desire is need. Instead of living your life passively, you can live your life actively. Desire is active. Need is passive. Things are going to come up that you need. There's no choice. You need it. You don't have a way to be proactive about your needs. When you eat, it's a need. You can't, you can't decide, I'm not going to eat for a week. I mean, I know people do it, but they go on these juice cleanse or whatever. But you can't decide. Your body needs it. Your body needs sleep. These are needs. You need to get winter tires in Montreal. It's not a choice. I mean, it is a choice, but you end up with a $500 ticket. Now, there's so many things in our lives 
that are needs that we turn into choices or desires and things that are desires that we turn into needs. In life, you want to deal with everything as a desire, not as a need. That's how God created the world. God desired, according to the Medrash, God desired a dwelling place in this world, in this low world. That desire is what influenced every single bit of our temporal creation. A desire, not a godly desire, not a human desire, but a desire nonetheless. That is the term, the emotional term that is used that references creating the world. That's why you'll see all these things are circles, but they're really not. They're really opposite ends. They're a circle, but they're opposite ends of a circle. So this is what Kabbalah wants. We have a mind and a heart on different sides. And the mind must dominate the hearts 51 to 49. We're not saying suppress it. We're not saying destroy it. We need those emotions. The mind must dominate it. How does it dominate it? If we take all the things that we need and turn them into desires. Instead of reacting emotionally, we be proactive. Why do I, for example, purpose? Why am I here? Some people say, I don't know. Why am I here? I don't know. You know what? I have no idea. I don't really care. Let's just make the best of it. That's terrible. What do we say? There is a specific purpose. The same way that God desired this world, God desired for you to be in this world, in this exact place, in this exact time, in this exact place in history. Sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me for shattering a Rolling Stone song. <laughs> uh, but that also comes from uh, from the mind because the mind wants to know. That's right. And because we don't, we can't fully know clearly, right? The mind would rather say, "I have no purpose here," and at least it could be calm. It's not tortured by. Idea that it needs to have a purpose, which is always there. Exactly. So it's like I don't know it, and that's I think one of the, the functions of faith is to come in. But even if you don't know, as somebody said before, take the first step, even if you don't know where it's going to lead. Since faith is about action, but it's about desiring being here. So what's the answer to someone who's depressed? Stop needing and start desiring. Want to be here? Find something. You you don't have anything to want right now. Find something to want. Don't find something within yourself. Try to find something without, of, without, outside of yourself. Because your depression is because you're focusing so much on yourself and your, your needs. Focus on something outside of yourself. Focus on a desire. Somebody says here online, your mind is a garden. Your thoughts are the seeds. You can grow flowers or you can grow weeds. We must control our thoughts and they will control us. Easier said than done. Thank you. Let's, let's continue. Page 19. The Jewish people 
have a knack for keeping their balance despite being confronted by extremes. They have great ideals, but also they're realists and pragmatists. They're sensitive to spirituality, the long list of prophets and visionaries, but also know how to keep their feet on the ground. They're steeped in study of the sacred Torah, but also know how to make a living and to create a warm and welcoming home environment. This ability to balance spirituality and the practical level of life goes back to Abraham. Abraham had just been circumcised and was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. At this point, God is revealed to him. Now, the idea of God being revealed to anyone is a very striking concept. Obviously, this means some kind of intense state of consciousness. Abraham had experienced this previously. There it says, Abraham prostrated his face down and God spoke to him. By contrast, when God is revealed to Abraham, he calmly sits at the entrance of his tent. A hint to the intensity of a divine revelation to Abraham is expressed in the idea that was happening in the heat of the day. The intensity of the sun relates to the intensity of the spiritual revelation that was taking place. Nonetheless, Abraham went on calmly sitting at the entrance. There's no indication that he was blown out of his mind. He seems to have been able to balance the exalted and intensely spiritual revelation of the divine with being a hospitable person, sitting at the entrance of his tent looking for guests. The sages tell us this is because he had been circumcised. The circumcision, the Brit, meaning the covenant with God expressed by Brit Milah, enabled Abraham to keep his balance when God was revealed to him. Why should circumcision have this effect? One explanation is because it establishes a pact between God and the most physical part of the person. This gives the person the ability to reach for the highest level of the sacred while at the same time keeping their feet on the ground. According to the sages, for a male, the covenant of circumcision requires a physical operation. By contrast, the Jewish female is considered to be born circumcised. She's born with the ability to balance holiness with the reality of daily life. Another aspect of the Brit, the covenant which balances holiness and daily reality, is that the power to affect not only one's physical body, but also the world in general, the prime example of this is the sacred land of Israel. And sages tell us that by merit of the covenant of a circumcision, the Jewish people were given possession of the Holy Land. They were able to transform the land of Canaan into a sacred land of Israel, the land where the divine is most intensely revealed. This is the purpose of the Jewish people in the world, to join holiness and daily reality, including physical flesh and physical earth, with balance, tenderness, and joy. What do you think? What's the story? What's it all about? What's our place in the world all about? We started off asking tonight, what's our unique mission? 
What's our unique purpose? How do we find balance in our life? So it's interesting because if you look at the geographic position of Israel, <coughs> it's the balance between Africa, Europe, and Asia. Very interesting. It's a three. Very interesting point. Yes. It's a three-point balance. Yes. Interesting. And, and, and going back to that, it's, it's the idea of, of balance. Balance is not just again, it's not just a state. What you're doing is that you are joining elements together. You're almost creating a, a harmony between different elements that are separate and that could be expressed in opposition to each other. And it's this idea of bringing these, these different elements together. It's a great point. Look, our job in this world is not to be totally focused in this world and it's not to be totally spiritual. It's to find balance in this world. The fact of the matter is, is here we are in a physical space, physical beings. There's chairs, there's tables, there's food, there's, there's drinks, there's cups, there's plates, there's technology, there's Facebook Live. Our job in this world is not just to think that we're in the spiritual place and we got to find the spirituality somewhere in this world. It's to take this world, to be completely within this world, but uplift it. Our job is to uplift this world, not to uplift some other world, not to uplift some spiritual metaphor of this world, not to say, ah, this world, what is it? It's all garbage anyway, crazy leadership, Craziness, stupid. That's not our place. We can't control that. Well, our vote could have controlled it, but then again, our vote coupled with percentage of other votes decided on who the leadership will be in this world. All those who could vote should have voted. All those who could vote should have voted. There's a lot of great things, but once again, we are focused on what we can control, not what we can't control. If we're leaders of particular industries and communities, then we are, our job is to get the vote out. But we can't control what they're going to vote. Tell them to vote. And that, in, ends, in essence, the, the... Or you could run. Or we can run. If we really think that the world is so bad, we could decide that we're going to go into politics. But then again... It's a whole different conversation for a different time. <laughs> then again, there's a thought also that what is is supposed to be. Yeah. So what is is supposed to be? The point is, is that we can't control it right now at this moment. We're sitting here, and our job is not to be removed from this world, not to say this world is vermin, not to be. And that essentially is the issue that 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 Kabbalah has with Noah. Right? Noah is seen as this righteous person, but he's righteous in his generation. Not in this generation. If he lived in any other generation, he would not be considered righteous because he failed the most important mission that he was given to change the hearts and minds of the people around him. The proof is, a couple years later, actually 10 generations later, Abraham was one man on a mission and today most of the, the world thinks like him. 4,000 years later. Noah could have done the same thing. He had the ability to do that. That was his place. 
You think God wanted to destroy the world? God didn't want to destroy the world. God wanted Noah to change the world. But he didn't see it that way. He didn't see his place in this world. He, like many others before him and after him to a certain extent, saw their places to remove themselves from this world. The world is corrupt. It's finished. That's not our place. Our place is to live in this world. To be physical people. To live in a physical world. And to desire the same desire that God used to create this world, we have to desire to uplift it, to make it better, to fill the world with goodness, to fill the world with good thoughts, with good vibes, with good feelings, with good people, with good experiences. That's our job, our unique purpose. And there's a reason why we are here in this place at this time. It's not by chance, it's not a fluke. It's not a, whatever, I'm here, might as well make the best of it. That's not what it's about. I'm here because there's a purpose for me being here. The fact that we're all sitting around here and sharing this moment together, there's a purpose in this moment. Is there one purpose or a series of purposes? Well, each one of us is, has a purpose for being here, which means now that we have shared this moment together, What's going to happen once we leave here? Now that we've experienced this, now that we've changed our focus for this moment, we're feeling very good. It makes all sense. It, we're feeling very, very uplifted right now. So now, what's going to happen now? We're here. We're sharing this moment. But we each have our own unique, different individual purposes. So this moment needs to be expressive to our own unique purpose. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Because it's a very powerful question, then I'll, I'll, I'll let you chime in. One of the great questions that I've been asked over the years is the Jewish view of fate versus destiny. Now, a lot of our society is based on the Greek view, which was fate. The Greeks believe in fate. The horoscope is one example of the Greek view of fate. And many other philosophers, if you go look at Aristotle's writings, you'll see a lot of it is based on fate. Basically, you came into this world and you are destined for whatever was made it out for you from the moment that you came into this world. And there's nothing you can do about it. Live with it. Suck it up. That's basically the prevalent societal view of this world. Judaism, Kabbalah, does not believe this at all. We don't believe this one iota. We believe in destiny. What is destiny? Destiny is the result of every of our choices. I make a choice, there's going to be a result of the choice that I make. For example, you made a choice to be here tonight. A lot of other places you could be. A lot of other things you could be doing. But you decided to be here in this moment right now. It's your choice. But you can't control what I'm going to say. You can control what you hear. You can control when your mind wanders. You can control what you take out of this. You can control what lessons you learn from this, but you can't control what I'm going to say. That's your destiny. The words, you chose to be here, you chose to be listening to these words right now. But you can't control what's coming out of my mouth. You can only control what you're going to let into your mind. Now, here's the great question. That was the preface to the question. Here's the great question. If all this is true, and God is all-powerful, and God is all-great, then is there really free choice? 
isn't it really isn't it really just faith anyway? God is all powerful. God is almighty. God knows everything anyway. Come on. Are we this is all one big show? Are you telling me this whole big fairy tale? God knows. Otherwise, not all powerful. If you believe there's a Hashem, you have to believe that Hashem is past, present, and future. If you believe that Hashem is past, present, and future, then you must believe that he must know everything. If he knows everything, then what are you talking about freedom and free choice? That's craziness. That's insanity. Making it all up. Don't tell it to the kids. We're free-thinking individuals. Don't sell us this boatload. But it wouldn't be interesting for him if Yusuf was his proxy of Yusuf. We're making it interesting for him. We're making it interesting. The best example I can give you, I've thought about this long and hard, and I don't have a better example than a VHS cassette. Remember those things? So what's a VHS cassette? Take the VHS cassette, you throw it into the VCR, and you start, you press play. And it starts in the first second, and how long does the movie go? Two hours, let's say. Two hours. What happens if you take the VHS cassette, now follow my line of thinking here, just a metaphor, just an analogy, and you unscrew the little things over there, you pick up the plastic, you pull out the little film inside. You take the little film, you go outside, and you hand one side of the film to somebody else, and you stretch it across the entire block. Follow, I'm going to continue this, it's a little, little fantastical, but we're going, to do, we're going to do this. You take a huge magnifier on a crane, and you stretch it across the entire block, and you go on the roof, while two people are holding the, 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 the film strip across the whole block, and a magnifier is magnifying this film strip. And you go onto the roof and you look at it. What are you going to see? You see the whole story. You're going to see the entire movie at once. Can you change or manipulate the movie? You can. Can you interfere with the movie? Not necessarily. If you wanted to, you probably could slice it up. But you don't want to. You're just observing the entire movie at the same time. Yeah, but you're talking about a static uh, element here. Hold on. Humans are not static. Hold on. That is the way God looks at our lives. Hashem does not want to interfere, per se, with our lives. So Hashem can see the choices that we make, but doesn't interfere with them. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the switch. This is what destiny is. Destiny is when Hashem crosses my film strip with yours and all of us together. Our film strips cross paths right here, right now, at this moment. We, couldn't, we, we control. The choice is that we had free choice to come with our own feet and walk into this moment right now. But we don't know who else was going to be here. We don't know what was going to be said. We don't know what was going to be experienced. That is what we call destiny. Destiny is the convergence of all of our little film strips into one moment. Now, each of us have our own unique individual destinies. So since we have our own unique individual destinies, what's going to happen as a result of our experience in this moment is going to affect our unique destinies, and we're going to have to take 
For example, if we went around the room, which we will at the end of tonight's class, and we're going to ask, what did you take out of this class? You're going to find that different people took different things out of the class because you took out of this class what was necessary for your own unique destiny. Well, someone else may have taken something very different. Now, we all love the human element of it, so we like to hear, oh, what did you take out of it? What do you take out of it? And we'll do that. But it's amazing because we can be talking for two hours. And in the ma matter of two hours, we can talk about so many very deep and mystical and powerful ideas. But at the end of those two hours, what you actually take home with you may be something that is totally different. And I would be shocked even being the one who said it, if that's what you took out of it. Because it's your unique experience and your unique purpose in this world. <coughs> Just gonna, somebody had a comment here. If destiny is a matter of our choices, why do some suffer so much more than others? Often the kindest people. The great question of destiny. Why bad things happen to good people? It's a fantastic question. I can spend, I don't think a two hour class would be enough to spend on it, but I've thought about this myself long and hard. And the only answer that I can give to this in a matter of 30 seconds is the answer the Rebbe gave, which I thought was the most beautiful answer. The Rebbe was a Holocaust survivor. He went through the, the greatest horrors of, I think, ever known to human beings. What people saw there, I, I mean, we only can imagine, but none of us really know what really happened there. Only what they've told us, only what we've seen possibly in the movies or read in books. But we have no idea how, how gruesome and terrible it was what it was like living every single day, five years, four and a half years like that. The Rebbe said this about the Holocaust and about why bad things happen to good people. The Rebbe said that there's some, we've gotten used to every question that we ask gets an answer. The Rebbe said there's some questions that we ask that by answering them, we destroy them. So we never want to answer them. Because the moment we answer them, we destroy them. We don't want to destroy these questions. We have to ask them over and over and over and over and over. We have to ask them in every time, in every place, in every condition. We have to ask them about ourselves and about others, about our difficulties, about others' difficulties. We have to continue asking them. But the moment we answer them, we destroy them, and that's not our deal. That's not our purpose. And anyone, the Rebbe said, who gives you an answer, as good as it may be, is wrong. about this for hours and hours. What do you think? You, you, you had a comment. No, the, I, the, the idea of the purpose is that I, I think the idea that there is a purpose is bigger than any particular purpose. Because if we say that there is a purpose this night, okay? Like, the purpose is this. No, your purpose is something else. And the well, you can't deny that there is a purpose, right? And that, that sort of principle that there's a purpose, it's, it's like the saying, everything happens for a reason. It's so um, trivial that you almost want to throw it away. It's like the most uninteresting thing. But when you think about it, really, everything does happen for a reason. Now, you may not know the reason. There may be different layers to the reason. You can look at it strictly from a physical point of view, and there is a cause and effect that led to that thing. You can look at it from an emotional point of view. You can look at it from a narrative point of view. In my life, I did this, and therefore after that, I did that. And that. But it's very, very clear that that's true in a very pragmatic way, that everything happens for a reason. Now, 
we can disagree as to what the reasons are, but there is a reason behind it. So that, that idea is bigger than any particular iteration because we have, you can find different reasons to interpret See, my question is more about debating purpose. Is it, is it singular or plural? It, it almost doesn't matter because if, if you say, again, you, you, you subject it to the general category of there is a purpose. Now, that includes a singular purpose. Maybe there is one singular ultimate purpose and you could find it and debate it and discuss it and try to get there. But there is a purpose. It also includes all of your different purposes are also included in that general purpose, right? Right. I mean, and, and, and similar to what you're saying, you're not going to have one unique purpose. You're going to have many purposes over the course of your life. You know, it could be, the Bab Shem Tov said, that it could be that someone's going to live in this world for 70 or 80 years just to be able to do a favor for another person. That is the entire purpose for which they live in this world. Now, is that the only purpose? What were the purposes that they had before those 70, 80 years that led up to that particular favor? How are the choices they made reflected on those various... I mean, you're talking about stuff that we can go on and on and on and on and on. There's layers upon layers upon layers. I don't know, how, I don't know if it's going to be useful for us to, to start going into all these deep ideas. I think that we can, on a philosophical level, it could be fascinating. But what's important is not to belittle the action. The point is that the, what the Baal Shem Tov is saying is that the purpose is the action. So what do we do? We make sure to make up our lives of lots of different little actions. And those actions converging will end up becoming the bane of our purpose. So um, I think what we'll do now is we'll go around, we'll get a little reflection. Everyone, you have something that sticks out in your mind from tonight. And those of you who are watching online can also write it and I'll, I'll read it to the group. Something that you take out of tonight. Something that's powerful, a message. You don't have to say it. There's no, no, uh, just one take home item that you can share some kind of reflection that you have from tonight. Anybody want to start? Yeah, the word's all so yours. It, 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 this evening flipped my thinking on balance. My thinking where I'm seeking the fulfillment center as opposed to perception is seeking the extremes to get balance. That's what this evening said. Okay. That's great. Thank you. Anyone else? And that for me is very important is to read the book, Meditation. So they help me to get a balance between Okay. Thank you. Any other reflections? No pressure. <coughs> Anything you want to share? here. Pain may be necessary, but suffering is optional. Somebody else writes, tonight I'm reminded that so much of the wisdom and guidance I seek is accessible to me 
right here within my own culture. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Any other thoughts? To me, this idea of, of, of bringing elements together in, in harmony, things that, that appear to be, uh, that contradict each other, that factor each other out, bring these elements and, and give all, all, all the examples here of, uh, of you know, being, being in this world, being very pragmatic and having these ideals, and being an idealistic person usually is like, ah, who cares about the practical world? And if you're a practical person, it's like, who cares about these ideas? But bringing, like having balance is bringing these different elements together and finding a, finding some kind of a harmony between them, and 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 and, and, and developing that, you know, that, that that ability to bring these, these these opposites together. I think it just creates a new synergy. It creates a, a new level of energy. It creates a you don't have to sacrifice the benefit of either one of those things, right? If you can do that, if you can pull that off, you can have it both ways. But I think that's the goal. You know, talking about ideals, our ideal is to be able to pull that off. Mm -hmm. Our ideal is not to remove ourselves from this world and not to start thinking idealism is beyond us. It's very much within us, but we have to make sure that we know where that balance really is and how it lies. Someone else writes here, it's so interesting that tonight I was looking for something inspiring to read and bumped into this class. The love-fear approach. I think it will. I will start applying this. Thank you. Yes, love-fear. I thought I was. So I always thought love-hate, mm. but I love-fear. Different perspective. Well, love-fear as a way of reacting to various situations in our lives. We have to also make sure that we're real with our lives. That we know what's natural. What is our nature? I mean, there's science that can teach us various elements of what our nature is. But we also have to know that just because it's our nature doesn't mean that it's right. Just because that's my natural inclination, that's just because I'm somebody who is, let's say, more neurotic than stable, or more closed to experience, or more open to experience, or more introvert or more extrovert, doesn't mean that that's the right thing for me. You know, there, there's a great thing about balance introvert versus extrovert, but I'm an introvert, or I'm an extrovert. What do you want to do? It's my nature. My nature is to be an introvert. It's true. We're not saying that it's not your nature to be an introvert, or it's not your nature to be an extrovert. But in your life, you want to balance yourself out. If you're an introvert, you want to try to find ways of being an extrovert. And if you're an extrovert, you want to try to find ways of being an introvert. But there's also a little secret. I'm going to teach you a little secret to balance. And for those of you who... Uh, experience this or have experienced this in your life, you understand what I'm saying. If you're not, if you're an introvert and you're not okay with being an extrovert or you don't want to take the time to be an extrovert or you're an extrovert, you don't want to take the time to be an introvert or you're someone who's very emotional and you don't want to go into the intellectual world or you're someone who's very intellectual, you don't want to go into the emotional world, get married. <laughs> Find someone in your life that will balance you out. It's happened that extroverts, I'm not saying always, but it happens that extroverts or extreme extroverts will find introverts and introverts will find extroverts. And people who are very emotional will find people who are very intellectual. And people who are very intellectual will find people who are very emotional. People who are open to experience will find people who are closed to experience. People who are flexible will find people who are not so flexible. Because 
marriage is a complement to our balance. What you're going to find is on the pendulum or on the scale of marriage or relationships, you're going to find that the two people together make a whole. We spoke about this in our first class, the single I love, that it's two parts of a whole. But what is the two parts of a whole really? You're balancing out the extremes. So within your couplehood, you're able to balance out those extremes. As, and here's a clear example. Someone here says, magic happens outside of our comfort zone. Yes. Also, when we speak of nature, also there is some balance there. Winter, for example, summer. Exactly. Solar system also. The world is constantly balancing itself out. One of the things that I've heard um, meteorologists saying this winter is that it's because it's been so warm, the, the, what we've gotten these, these uh, polar vortexes because the earth is trying to balance itself out in temperature. Everything is going to, whichever situation you put yourself in, it's going to try to balance itself out naturally. Seems like we always get the short end of the stick. Huh? We have global warming somewhere else, we get the polar vortex. Who said it was supposed to be easy? <laughs> Who signed you up for easy? Whoever told you this world was easy, they were wrong. But what, what you're saying about, about getting get married is so true, but it, there's a bigger principle. It's also like when you're forced to be confronted to other human beings on a day-to-day -day level, you are forced to be confront, confronted with your limitations as a person, right? Your fears, your limitations, More whatever it is. A human being that knows you intimately. Right. That's, what, more, that's what intimacy is. I suppose it's possible that two complete narcissists with the exact same strengths and weaknesses yeah, get married. They're not going to stay night. married very long. Uh, two narcissists? I don't think so. I don't think so. But, but, I think science would be against that as well. <laughs> but, but one of the tragedies today of this uh, social media world where you, don't, you no longer have to confront other human beings. You just create your echo chamber and you just stay in your devices and completely segregated from everybody, is that you create your echo chamber and you could stay inside your limitations and you do not have to confront other human beings and you could just, that could be your life. Yeah. And you feel less resistant, but in a way, you're also less called upon to work on your limitations or to balance yourself out than you would be naturally if you were in a situation where you just had to confront other human beings. Exactly. And, and people who don't have the, 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 the I say the fortune of being in a long-term relationship don't also don't have that ability you know and, and working on a long-term relationship being in a marriage it takes a tremendous amount of work and people who don't have that ability don't don't know what they don't know I'm sure for those of you who aren't you've been in that situation in your life so you know what I'm talking about but there's a value and there's a beauty in that that and and when it comes to balancing you think about it's not only our own lives that we have to balance the people that we surround ourselves with, the other people we bring into our lives. If we own a company, the people who work for us are going to be balancing. If you're going to hire someone who's just like you, you're going to butt heads a lot. You want to hire people that are different than you, that have different qualities than you, and together your company becomes a whole unit. Now, the bigger your company, the more elements of that unit you're going to need. But the only reason why you want to hire someone is because they have a different set of skills than you have. And your company, as being the balancing, needs to be able to do that. And in your lives, you're going to find, if you have a family, children, your children are going to be different. 
than you. Yes, they're going to have certain similarities, and sometimes it irks parents when they see the certain similarities their kids have with them, but they also have a lot of differences. Together, the family becomes a unit. And you're going to find that in all your friends. True friends. I'm not talking about uh, acquaintances. Not Facebook friends. I said you got some Facebook friends. I have Facebook friends. Yeah. <laughs> most, hopefully most of my Facebook friends are real friends also. I hope. Where Facebook is just a way that we, uh, that we converge. But your friends, your true friends, are going to be balancing to you. And that's why you like them, and that's why that works for you. There's actually, within Kabbalah, there's something called gematria. It's a whole system of numerology, of how you find the people around you, and what, and what, what, what role they play. And at some point, if you want to go over that, I'm happy to talk about different personalities. We can go over all the different personalities, and we can even do like an analysis of the people in your life, and their personalities, and how they will play a role in balancing out your life. That, that, that could be something we can do in the future. Where I used to work, we had a program that was called called Myers Briggs, which essentially yeah. looked at all the personality types. And one of the things was to create teams with balanced personality types. You wouldn't put all the same personality types in the same system. It, it wouldn't work. Right. Exactly. So that, that so Myers Briggs is many other systems. Uh, Myers Briggs is the most popular one, but is actually one within Kabbalah as well, a whole personality system, which we can talk about. And we're going to, I know that uh, this was going to be the end of our uh, our session, but uh, if anyone would like, and we'll take a vote, we, we're ha happy to continue next week and to move this on, and we can think of a topic. If you have any topics that you want to uh, think about that I can plan for next week, I'm happy to do that as well, and uh, we can move on uh, this whole thing. Uh, what I want to do is after... Passover, so in, in about eight or nine weeks from now, my, my spring semester, I want to go through each of the Kabbalistic concepts, and I want to um, teach you, like, as if you know, each of the concepts, and go through them and talk about them and make them practical and how to find the balance in our lives. But for now, I'm happy for the next uh, couple of Mondays to, uh, to just focus on various elements of uh, of, of and our lives. If you have a specific topic, please send it to me. Also, very important, this coming Wednesday night is Tu Bishvat, which is the New Year for trees, and we're having a whole Seder here, a beautiful Seder, wine and cheese and fruits, and a whole really, really nice event here uh, with a couple surprises. And uh, I really, uh, really hope that you uh, can come to it. The next one? This coming Wednesday, in two Why days from now. In two days from now. It's going to be a blue moon. It's a very special night. It's the 15th of the month. The 15th, so it's a full moon. And uh, there's a lot of power to that also, the new cycle. And it's also, that's why the New Year for Trees. And we'll talk, there's Kabbalistic elements to it. Um, tonight, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, early bird that ends tonight, which is $25. Otherwise, it's 35 at the door. But I encourage you to, uh, to come. Also, um, there's a couple of other classes that are uh, coming up tomorrow night. There's a history, Jewish history class. Wednesday morning is my Talmud class at 10 o'clock in the morning. If you haven't attended that, it's a whole different level. Nothing Kabbalistic. Very, uh, we go through, uh, we're going through the Talmud Brachot now. And uh, any other ideas that you have for upcoming classes, or I, you know, this is uh, not the end. We never end. We have to continue. We have to continue growing, continue learning, 
and uh, that's a, a very, very important element of our lives. That's uh, my thought for tonight. Any last questions? Yes. The Tama class is open for women. Yes. Someone asked this online. Uh, I can't wait for more. Please tell me when and where, and I'll be there again. We're going to try to continue this every single Monday night. We do it here live every Monday night. I don't always get it to be live on Facebook for those of you who follow it on Facebook, but we are try to be here every single Monday night uh, with a different topic at 8 o'clock. Someone else writes here, who created the universe and the earth and the planets? Okay, we have, it's a whole different uh Topic that we'll have to go into. We'll do another one. Yeah, we'll do. Uh, we'll do another. We'll, we'll, we'll do another session. Exactly, Kabbalah of the universe, where the, the Kabbalah and science convergence. We can do that as well. Any other uh, thoughts, ideas, yeah. comments, death threats? Yeah. Yes, it's something I echo back to Rick and Morty. Yes. Um, my experience actually uh, how to become friends someone so different, the opposite from one another. You you want to find your complement, not your opposite. I have my opposite. Yeah, you so <laughs> you first opposite? you first have to know who you are and then you have to you first have to know who you are and then you can find your complement. So there's different elements. I mean I can we can talk about this. We spoke a little bit about it during our class on, on love. But we can talk about it in the future. I also have um, I have a, a podcast actually that I try to do every few days. It's called the Love Rabbi Podcast, and I talk about um, all these different elements and I, specific things having to do with marriage and love and relationships and dating. And so I answer all these types of questions. I have a column also in the newspaper. And I answer all these questions on love and relationships. So, so but it's a big, big topic. Big topic. I'm happy we can talk about it in the future. We're good? Okay, to be continued. Thank you, Rabbi.